everyone, welcome to this week's episode of the Thrive with Asbury Seminary podcast, where every other week we bring you conversations with authors, thought leaders, and people just like you to help you connect where your passion meets the world's deep need. This week on the podcast, we're talking with Reverend Jessica Legrone, Dean of Chapel at Asbury Seminary. In this episode, we talk about ways the clues and community in her life led her from being a scientist to a pastor, how she came to Asbury Seminary as a student, and later as the Dean of Chapel, where she now integrates her faith, work, and life, and of course, my favorite, the Enneagram. We go deep into her quest to discover the power of Jesus that led her to write Inside the Miracles of Jesus. Let's listen. So Jessica, thanks for thanks for taking the time to come by today. So I only have people on the podcast that I want to get to know better. Great. So I'm really excited about this opportunity to talk to you and get to know you a little thanks bit more. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah. And find out ch- more about your book. So. Yeah. Fun to have a chance to sit down and chat. Yeah. Yeah. Um, we've known each other on committees and things mm-hmm. like that, but it's fun to just sit down and talk. So I know a little bit about how you were called to ministry because um, we've talked off and mm-hmm. on before, mm-hmm. but could you just remind me of that story and how you knew sure. you were called? Sure. Um, it's a little bit of a delayed call story because I think I started feeling called to ministry around age nine. Mm-hmm. But in terms of just announcing it to the world or admitting that I felt like I was called to be a pastor, that probably happened during college. But um, nine years old, I um, went to Christian summer camp and uh, accepted Christ as my Savior, got saved, accepted Jesus into my heart, whatever kind of phrase you want to say. I was nine and I knew he was real and I knew he loved me and I wanted that for a lifetime. And it was really, people don't think that children in elementary school have that much agency, but gosh, I remember it being just a really powerful experience. So I Mm -hmm. encourage people to really talk to kids seriously about their faith. Um, So I came back from this camp. I sat down in my wonderfully loving uh, congregation that I had been part of, this little church in Southwest Houston area, just a suburb of Houston had been there since I was four years old. And these people had loved me so well, but I, I don't think they had really, we didn't really have leadership from the pulpit that just clearly proclaimed faith in Jesus Christ. Mm. And I remember feeling pulled to share with these wonderful people that Jesus was real. Wow. Um, I also think that we kind of had the ups and downs of some great pastors and some not so great pastors. Mm-hmm. And I always say that a lot of people's call story is something really romantic and biblical, like, here I am, send me, Uh where mine, I can remember being, you know, a little older than nine, but sitting through a particularly boring sermon (laughs) and thinking to myself, I could do better than that. So what a terribly proud and not humble call phrase that is. I could do better than that. But the way that my call has usually worked is through some kind of um, just feeling that really the church deserves the best that we have to mm-hmm. give yeah, and kind of a holy discontentment. Um, and could I help the kingdom in some way? So I, I love science. I love biology. I felt called into medicine. Mm-hmm. I went to undergrad and got a biology degree and about halfway through that, God was just giving me that kind of holy repetition that's like tapping you on the shoulder, tapping you a little harder. Maybe you need to be hit upside the head a few times before you hear it. 
What did that look like for you, that repetition? Yeah, um, just multiple messages from people who are not connected to each other at all. I had a, a pastor back at my home church who sent me, through my mom, sent a brochure about, you should go to this conference. It's for young people called into ministry. And I thought, you don't even know me. Mm-hmm. What what makes you think I'm called into ministry? Mm-hmm. I, I went, <laughs> and it was great. <laughs> but I thought, what am I doing here? I had a public speaking professor who was really influential in my life. But after just a few speeches in class, he called me into his office and asked if I wanted to do an independent study with him in homiletics. And I said, what's homiletics? And he said, it's preaching. And I said, I'm a science major. Why would I want to do that? Right, right. And he said, "Um, because you've been preaching in my class, Jessica. And I said, no, I haven't. I've been giving the assigned speeches. He said, but they're all about God. (laughs) Um, And it was true. The Bible just kind of found its way into my speeches that I was giving in class. And I loved um, preaching. I had a church reach out to me and ask if I would be their youth pastor for my last year in college. To this day, I don't know how they got my name or phone number. Uh It just, the Lord was like sending me these messages through different leaders, through different things I was involved in. And by the time I got to about age 20 and began to be able to say out loud, I think I'm called to be a pastor with a lot of fear and trepidation, everyone in my life said, well, you're the last one to know. Like we, we all knew. Why didn't you know? So it was, it was both, you know, a really early call, but also a gradual realization. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to go back to where you were talking about, you felt you were called to medicine and you thought that was your, Mm -hmm. your calling. Mm -hmm. Like, I think because I'm thinking about my own calling too. And like, sometimes you think it's one thing and then how did you know Mm -hmm. it was something else? And would it have been like not your calling to continue to do what you, you thought at first was medicine? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I love that. Um, I mean, I really believe firmly in what we call the priesthood of all believers, which Mm -hmm. means all of us are called every baptized Christian is Mm -hmm. in ministry Mm -hmm. and should see what they do with their lives as ministry. And I definitely had that sense about medicine. I, I, um, I love the human body. I love the way God has created us. I love that we can be part of people's healing Mm -hmm. through medicine. Um, what I didn't love, this was really interesting. I worked for a pediatric clinic, uh, for a few years while I was in school and, the folks that came in, it was really more for low-income folks who were really struggling. Their lifestyles were really rough, and their mm-hmm. kids' lives showed it. Mm-hmm. The kids struggled with their health because of inconsistency or just environment. And we would see these families. We would give them medicine and make them better, mm-hmm. and then they'd come back, and we'd give them medicine and make them better. And a lot of the issues that they were facing were things that I thought, gosh, I would really love for them to know what I think is the real solution to some of their struggles, which is Christ. Mm-hmm. I want to share Jesus with them. And the most frustrating thing for me about that medical job was mm-hmm. I was not allowed to vocally share my faith in that role. Wow. Um, I could have stayed in that role and helped a lot of people and loved it. I probably could have gone into private practice and shared Christ with people if I if that had been my goal through that. It I think every job you have teaches you a little more about yourself mm-hmm. and your calling. 
And one of the things that one taught me is that I would never be really content unless I could really just blatantly share Christ with people. So that gave me a little clue, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, what's a job where you do that? How yeah. can I live into that? But I think even you know where you're saying, considering your own calling, mm-hmm. thinking about what you're called to do with your life, what you're doing gives you clues, both positive, hey, I love to do this, mm-hmm. and negative, like, oh, this just isn't enough. Well, what would be? You know, yeah. what does that lead you to conclude? Yeah, but and it was another confirmation mm-hmm. for you that hey, maybe I need to think about yep. being a pastor. Right. Again, the holy discontentment. Yeah. When we're when we're uncomfortable in situations, it gives us clues. Yeah. So then was that during college or yeah. after Okay, right. during mm-hmm. college. Mm-hmm. So then I know you came to Asbury as a student. Mm-hmm. How did you get to Asbury? I that's a great question. So I I knew I wanted to look at seminaries, and I have this thing where I just think I need to collect all the information before I make a decision. That's the scientist in you. It is. It is. All the data. I visited maybe eight seminaries. Wow. Really spread out across the country. I wanted to set foot and see places and... um, you know, every one of them had had gifts. I, at the time, I was serving in, as a youth pastor, so I had a couple of years in there between college and seminary where I was figuring things out, where I might want to go, what I was called to. And a church that I served as a youth pastor, a, a couple came home to visit their their aging parents, and they were both Asbury graduates. And they said to me, don't promise us you won't make a decision until you've seen Asbury. Until you've set foot on the campus. Like, don't just go on the website. Don't do the research. Mm-hmm. Set foot on the campus. Promise us. Yeah. I was like, Kentucky? How am I going to get to Kentucky? Well, I found a way. There was a, a conference that was being hosted here. And Ellsworth Callis was speaking at that oh, conference. Yeah. And I'd always wanted to meet him in person. Mm-hmm. I had read his, some of his books. So I, I found a way to come for this conference. And literally, within an hour of setting foot on this campus, I knew this is the wow. place for me. Yeah. It just, it had an atmosphere of being a place where the Holy Spirit is alive and active. Mm-hmm. And just to be honest, that, that wasn't the sense I got from other seminary campuses, mm-hmm. not all of them that I had visited. I knew that there was a really strong community here. And I knew there were pieces of my faith that were not yet in place, that th- I was longing for more uh-huh. faith in God. But they weren't there yet. And I thought Asbury looked like a place where I could pursue a deeper faith in God, as well as the wonderful academic foundation Uh coursework. Uh I got a lot out of the classroom. But I will just tell you that I loved chapel. I was a chapel nerd. Uh I hung around the chapel office. Um, J.D. Walt became the dean of chapel my second, third year here. And... um, I wouldn't leave him alone. And so <laughs> he made me the first chapel intern that he had while he oh, was here. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, and, you know, lo and behold, that was a little clue as well that 13 years after my graduation, I would like end up back here. Yeah. So. Yeah. So what pieces of your faith did you know were missing? Because I think mm. you were probably in your mid-20s yeah, at that point when right. you came. Mm-hmm. And I think that's very insightful mm-hmm. that you knew there was there were pieces of your faith that you were lacking, not just the knowledge, but like right. the personal stuff. Mm-hmm. I think it's a sense we get when we spend time with people who are really, truly, deeply people of faith in God. When when you're around 
people, whether in worship or in conversation or you have a relationship with someone who has a true and deep faith in Jesus Christ, and you just sense from them. I mean, there are just there are people that as you're talking to them, you just think, it's like you just had coffee with Jesus. Yes. And when you talk about him, he's real to you. And I want that. I want more of that. Yeah. Now, I'll tell you that that's still the case for me. Mm-hmm. I still want deeper and more true faith mm-hmm. in Jesus Christ. But I think at the time, I had a sense that I knew more about God than I knew God personally. Oh, yeah, that makes total sense. And I wanted that transition from head to heart to be mm-hmm. one that I recognized that I could fully relate to God in both ways. Because I, I love to study. I love to read. I wanted that sense of like God and I are, um, you know, we're inseparable. He's in every moment of my day, not just these moments that I've designated. Yeah. So that left me feeling like I I needed and wanted more. And I saw that in people's lives that I interacted with at Asbury. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So then after you graduated, you went back to Texas and... Mm-hmm. Did you immediately pastor at the Woodlands? Like, tell me, tell me your journey because right. I want to get you. You're back at Asbury now, yeah. so I want to get you well, back. Well, I will just tell you, I like. I remember graduating really well. I remember driving away and literally looking at the Asbury sign in my rearview mirror mm-hmm. and thinking, "When will I see this place again that I love?" And the thought occurred to me, I would do anything for Asbury Seminary, and I thought. I would just be a really good alum. It's another clue, right? You would be the alum that would tell the next Jessica, like, don't make a decision until you come here. But I will recommend Asbury. I will, you know, give to the fun drives. I will, I'll be a great, you know, graduate and try to be the best witness for what an Asbury education can do out in the pastorate. So I first pastored at a church just south of Houston in a town called Pasadena, Pasadena, Texas, not to be confused with California. (laughs) It's very different. Um, And it was a mid-sized church, really loving church, really um, your first place that you serve. uh, It either, it forms you a lot in good (laughs) ways and bad. Mine was very formative in a good way. One of the stories that I'll never forget I had a four or five bedroom parsonage and I was single and had a dog. So we had a lot of space and not much furniture and (laughs) no Christmas decorations. I didn't own a tree. I didn't own an ornament. I, um, and I remember sharing that with somebody at church. Christmas was coming that very first year I had gotten there in June. Here we were in late November, Mm -hmm. early December. And I happened to say to somebody, Oh, I guess I'd better go buy some tinsel. I don't have anything to decorate my house. And the very next week, we would have these Wednesday night dinners at church and everybody would come. The very next week, there were a bunch of people huddled around this table, being very secretive, Mm -hmm. not letting me see what they were doing. And when somebody, when they moved away and somebody called me over, they had all bought one Christmas ornament. Oh. And here was this table full of very eclectic, some of them brought from their own tree, some of them went and shopped. And now every year when we decorate our tree, mm-hmm. I can tell you who gave me each ornament. Um, a lot of those people have passed away mm-hmm. and their memories. It's almost like the, their whole story for me is just encapsulated in that yes, ornament. That is precious. What, what a sweet and giving place. I was there to pastor them, but mm-hmm. new pastors need a lot of help. Yeah. Congregations really have to be patient and love us through our earliest and worst sermons. And 
um, I had a great mentor at that church. I was an associate pastor, so okay. the senior pastor became one of my dearest friends, and I still today will call him when I need help in ministry or when I just want to grieve something that's happened. Yeah. He's a pastor to me. So I had that blessing of working for someone who was a model for ministry mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Which um, is a huge gift. Yes. Yes, and that church, oh my word, like, I think about myself, like a few, like, cause you wouldn't be able to go home for Christmas cause right. that's no. the busiest time of year. And always being so, at work on Christmas. I remember my first Christmas that I couldn't go home and like how nice people were and like inviting you to me to dinner and right. how much like, like you can't ever like actually right. say thank you. Thank you for that because it's so, yes, you can't repay that. And people don't always think of their pastors as being a person. No, who they needs don't. their yeah. love and support, yeah. but they are. Yeah. And and they saw me in that way, and it, it was a tremendous gift. Yeah. It was while I was at that church that um, I met my husband. Okay. And we, they, they, you know, loved us through our dating. It was really funny. The pastor has a boyfriend. That's not something you say very often. Then a fiance. Right. Then they all showed up for our wedding. So how did you meet? We met on a Christian dating website. Really? We met online. Okay, tell and me. He lived in West Texas in uh, Lubbock, and mm-hmm. I lived in on the eastern end in near Houston. So we're in the same state, but we're about nine hours apart. Yeah, Texas is huge. Yeah, and so we never really would have run across each other. Um, but it, the interesting thing is, Jim went to college at Texas Tech in Lubbock. He had was part of a Wesley Foundation, a, a campus ministry where a ton of people came through that campus ministry still today and come to Asbury as students. They raise mm-hmm. up leaders and really send it's a pipeline to Asbury, send mm-hmm. a lot of people. So the people he had gone to college with were the people I had gone to seminary with. Okay. We, when we first figured this out, we knew about 30 people in common. Wow. Um, all of these people, some of his best friends, had been some of my closest friends. And they That's never amazing. told us about each other. And so we jokingly called them our thanks for nothing list. <laughs> um, he also, this is interesting, had a deep love for Asbury. Because of these friends and what this place meant to them, he had been here to visit. He actually, the the last time he had been to Asbury to visit had been in my first month in Wilmore. We could have bumped into each other. But yeah. Wilmore small enough, we right. might have seen each other, but we right. didn't. We didn't. <laughs> and now we were both, you know, in opposite ends of the state. So that's our little like long distance love story. Uh-huh. And then he moved um, so that we could date in person and not just on weekends. He came to Houston. We got engaged and we were we were married about ten months when we moved from that kind of medium sized church to the Woodlands United Methodist Church, okay. which is just north of Houston. It's one of the largest United Methodist churches in the connection. Yeah, that's a lot of transition it was. in a short amount of time. It was. It was a blessing, though, because, you know, we got to go from this place where people knew me, mm-hmm. and then they sort of knew him as an accessory to my life, right? right? I was the person they knew, and then here comes Jim. Well, when we moved together, when you move together as a married couple, it's like, oh, that's all they know is you as a couple. It was it was a fun transition. We got right. to buy our first house together instead of him just, you know, moving his stuff into the five-bedroom parsonage, which is what we had done. Um, and then we stayed at the Woodlands for nine years. Mm-hmm. It was um, the place where both of our children were born. I was the first female pastor on their staff. Yeah. They had never they had never said the words "the pastor's pregnant" before. <laughs> uh, they had never seen anyone preach in their robe, looking like it's a maternity tent. Right. Um, 
they were super kind to us and just loved our babies when they mm-hmm. came, loved um, that church had a, a nursery and a preschool in it. So our, my kids literally came to church with me yeah. and would be down the hall for me and I could go check on them whenever I How great I wanted. is that? It was fantastic. It was really a great place. Um, they all, it was all they knew for the longest time was this mega church and, and sort of hard for them to understand that that was the, the, the same thing as like, say my mom's church, which was a normal church. They would say things like, oh, I go to school and my school has a church in it. Um, (laughs) no, your church has a school in it. Right. But when we had been there about nine years, um, we got a call from Asbury saying there was a a search for the Dean of Chapel position. Mm -hmm. And um, just that my name had come to someone in prayer. And really, first, I just thought, yeah, right. You know, this <laughs> yeah. is here is this incredible position, this dean of chapel. It's, mo- it's more than a job. It's like a, a person who symbolizes Asbury mm-hmm. for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a student here, the, the person in that position was my pastor and my leader and my guide. And I just could not quite imagine that they meant me. Yeah. Um, and just through that interview process and through coming to campus, Jim came with me um, when I interviewed. We really just felt the Lord leading and confirming mm-hmm. that this mm-hmm. was the place for us to be in ministry. How did you know? Was it a moment or more like mm. a journey or, or both? Yeah, that's a great that, that that's a good way to put it. We um, there was really Texans just don't leave Texas. Let's just say that right. without a good reason. Right. There, we had never pictured ourselves. All both of our our sets of parents are in Texas. Mm. All of our families, we we have the both only grandchildren on both sides. Right. So there is a lot of weeping and mourning when we took them away across oh, the no country. Doubt. So we really needed God to confirm. You know, this was not something that we sought out. Uh, it wasn't like a career ladder that I expected to seek in any way. It had to be a calling. It had mm-hmm. to be the Lord saying, this is what I have for you. Mm-hmm. And um, I think it was when we when we came for the interview visit, I had asked God, I just said, if you're going to confirm that this is it, I need you to make it clear, not just to me, but to Jim. Mm-hmm. I want us to both know. Mm-hmm. So it's not like something that I'm convincing him of or some decision that I've made that he needs to get on board with. Mm-hmm. I wanted God to speak to both of us. And I would say it was both kind of in a moment in worship, mm-hmm. but also just our time here interacting with people. Jim was more certain about it than I was. Interesting. He, when, I, when I first heard about the position and drove home and was processing everything and told him, the first words out of his mouth were, let's go. Wow. Which is a huge gift from a spouse if you're in ministry, that kind of support. And I know it was the work of God. Was there ever a time when you were a student here that you ever thought you would be back as dean of chapel or as anything? Mm, No. (laughs) You know, (laughs) honestly, honestly, no. I I came here to prepare for to be a pastor. And I really assumed that this was... um, really some of the best time of my life were spent Mm -hmm. as a student here but I assumed that it was temporary and that the next phase of my life would be the permanent one you know Mm -hmm. the now you're going to go out work in the church um what I discovered coming back here we've been back five years this June oh wow um this I just hit my fifth year here in ministry oh congratulations and it 
what I realized coming back is this is pastoral ministry. You know, Absolutely. Being, being dean of chapel is really pastoring this place. Mm-hmm. The students, their families, really the faculty and the staff community. And I, I get to walk with people through a very transitional and important part of their lives. And some of the students, I've been here long enough, you know, to see whole, whole classes of students come in and then graduate and go out. I've been part of some of their weddings now. I baptized their babies. I just got back on Sunday from one of their ordination to and a commissioning, Nathan and Lauren Weaver in West Virginia. Um, they, we had been really close. They had been close to our family. And we, so we went for the ordination and commissioning service. And so special to see like these whole communities come in and then go out and yes. and know that um, we've had a chance to walk with them during a time when you really need assurance that like God can call you to this wonderful thing called mm-hmm. ministry and it's a good life. You know, there's d- difficult things about it, but just to to pastor and assure these students and their families that what God calls you to, he He will care for uh-huh, you. He'll uh-huh. take care of your family. Uh-huh. You have to, to trust him in it. You're the first female dean of chapel at Asbury. What is that like? Um, I It's not my first time to be the first woman mm-hmm. in a position. I was the first uh, female pastor at the Woodlands. And I really, uh, it, it was very welcoming. I received not just from people who were here on campus, but our alumni community, mm-hmm. really the, the community that is Asbury extended around the world. Yes. So many people reached out to me to say, we're so grateful and excited to see a woman in this role. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think you always want to see the best person in a role, but I think it is exciting when you get to see the first for something. Absolutely. Um, I felt like the student body was overwhelmingly welcoming and positive. I immediately had like all these appointments on my calendar of women going into pastoral ministry saying, will you mentor me? Yeah. It was almost like a backlog of people that had been searching for someone so they could see someone doing what they felt called to do and have. And and I remember that, too. I remember sort of looking for women in roles that I could say that that's what I want to do to see visually it. You know, you can be a professional woman in ministry and a wife and a mom at the Uh same time. Uh You can have a life and relationships alongside your calling. Uh And um, just to know, you know, Asbury is the place that taught me that women are equal and shoulder to shoulder with Uh men in leadership in all roles in the church and in life. And then Asbury is the place that affirmed that by calling me back to work in this incredible job. Was there somebody for you, like when you were nine and 11, and could you see, was there anybody that you were like, yes, I want to be like her? Little bits and pieces. Mostly it was outside ministry. You know, I I think I had role models of professional women in in other roles. I mentioned the pediatric clinic I worked at. Um, The executive director who had founded that clinic was a friend of my mom's who was just this incredible female leader. Mm-hmm. She was really a person I lifted up. And and there were women in other roles. I did not know a lot of female pastors growing up. So the few that I knew, I kind of clung to um, in terms of, you know, what is, what is life like? What is family yeah. life like? What is ministry life like? But there's a lot more of us now. Mm-hmm. And which is good. Lots of Asbury grads out there, which is fun. So yeah. that's that's been 
that's been an encouragement to be part of sort of that growing community. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So when I should have looked this up, but I didn't. When did you start becoming an author? Like when did you like and what was that process like? Yeah. yeah. Um, in my heart or on paper? Um, I, <laughs> well, both. I, I, you know, from a really early age have loved to read and always loved to write and known that I wanted to write. I really, even in seminary and in pastoral ministry, I was always kind of writing and looking for venues to get my writing out there mm-hmm. and publish. I would go to writing conferences, um, Christian writing workshops, things like that. I took a class in seminary. So I, it's been an aspiration for me for a long time. Uh-huh. I can tell you the exact year the publishing aspect of it started for me because uh, it happened the year my daughter was born. So she just turned seven, and that is the year I was actually about five, six months pregnant with her when a publisher approached me about some work I'd been doing at the Woodlands at the Uh church and told me that they were looking to publish uh, a new um, Bible study, a a new kind of department of Bible studies was opening up. Um, invited me to Nashville to have a conversation about that. And then what really wanted me to finish the project I was already working on for the church and publish it, they were hoping before Kate was born. Oh, wow. And gosh, that that just didn't happen. And so I, I finished that first book, which is called Namesake. I finished it while on maternity leave, and which is a crazy time for anyone yeah. who's experienced that. I would literally like have... Um, the laptop open on our bed and would be typing on a chapter. Kate's bassinet was at the foot of our bed, and I would kind of be shaking it with my foot while I was typing on the bed. And then Jim would be asleep in the bed. And (laughs) thankfully, he is a very heavy sleeper with earplugs in especially. Um, And so it was just like this, God God let me sort of live out these dreams at the same time. Um, That's awesome. So the birth of our second child and the birth of the first book all in the same year. Yeah. Well, there is kind of the same. Like it is a birth. It is. There's a lot of labor. Yeah, I'll just (laughs) say that. A lot of labor. (laughs) Uh, Somebody said like everybody wants to write a book, but really what you want is to have written a book because the, the work is hard. Yes. I have not written a book, but I can imagine. You do a lot of writing for the seminary. And it's, but it's not the same. It's beautiful. But as you know, it's like getting the words on the page is, is harder than you would think. It can be hard. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, I'm much happier when it's written. Yes, <laughs> yes. I, would, I would agree. Yes. Um, so Miracles, it came out. That's your latest book. Yes. Right. Inside the Miracles of Jesus. When did you like first become interested in Jesus' miracles? Oh, it's it's been a process. I would say it's been a couple of years, maybe three years mm-hmm. ago, and I was going through it, a lot of writing. Kind of starts as a personal spiritual quest for me. Some, mm-hmm. some like I said, I like to gather all the information. People who are Enneagram followers, that's a five. Okay, um, so you're a five. Yes. Yeah, so okay. people who like to gather all the information and just you know, my my dream would be just like a squirrel with nuts. Like let's just store up all of this wonderful research. Um, somehow I have to like turn it around into writing for other people, but it always begins with this just desire to know more. And mm-hmm. um, a few years ago, just at a particularly difficult time spiritually, I think I just I needed to connect with 
the Jesus who did incredible acts Mm -hmm. and supernatural works Mm -hmm. for people. You know, sometimes you need to know about Jesus's compassion, about his teaching. I needed to know about God's power. Mm-hmm. And I went on a little hunt for that. I went like a squirrel collecting nuts through the Gospels. I began to look at each miracle. And I really I, I started marking in my Bible, which is still kind of hard for me because um, my mother was a librarian. And so okay. I was just drilled into me, do not write in books. But I, I do like to underline uh-huh. and mark in the margins of my Bible, even though I feel a little bit like I'm about to be scolded every time I do it. Um, <laughs> So at each point that there was a miracle in the Gospels, I would put a little M mm-hmm. next to the miracle. So I could sort of look, just glance, and see where the miracles were concentrated, spread out, which Gospel there were more of. Um, and then I started to notice something else. And this was really the the transformational point for me, is that before each miracle happened, there was always someone who was desperate, mm-hmm. someone who needed Jesus's supernatural help and for someone who couldn't do it for themselves. And that's when the miracles happen. Jesus is responding with compassion to these desperate people. Every, I, every situation that I name, there are a couple that you have to dig a little harder to see what the desperation is. But for the most part, you know, someone's, someone's child is dead. They're mm-hmm. desperate. Someone doesn't have enough food. Um, someone is blind and calling out to Jesus on the mm-hmm. side of a road. These are desperate people. So I I actually started putting a little D for the desperation that uh-huh. I found. And all the way through my the Gospels of my Bible are the letters D and M, D and M. So mm-hmm. desperation followed by miracles. So I really, I went looking for the power of God. And what I found was it was very connected to his compassion, mm. very connected to Jesus seeing the need and responding with compassion and power. So that that line from the hymn, holy, 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 uh-huh. merciful and mighty, those two things go together. Oh, yeah. um, and that was transformational for me. I thought there is something here where God loves our desperation yeah. and comes to our rescue. Yeah. What else did you learn about God's character? In the process. Yeah. Because you talk about that in the book, like, a little bit. Yes. Um, I learned that what God wants most to offer is himself. That He what he wants for us is when we're desperate, for us not just to ask for what we're desperate for, Uh what we think we're desperate for. Right. Right? Mm -hmm. Um, But to ask for him because he is the ultimate thing that we need. Mm -hmm. So each person that received a miracle got Jesus. You know, they they got this powerful and merciful and compassionate God coming alongside them. And so the the miracles are temporary, you know, the the wedding at Cana that the wine ran out eventually, mm-hmm. the feeding of the 5000, they ate up all that food eventually. Mm-hmm. Um even res- resurrected or resuscitated people die again. Um, so Jesus is giving these miracles, knowing this will, this will come to an end someday, but that the gift of God himself and Jesus Christ is never ending. Mm, I love that. So I just started asking myself, so why don't I think to ask for him? <laughs> you know, why don't I think like Jesus, what I need right now is you. Yeah. Um, because that, that for me is what he wants us to connect with. And that's how our desperation is just kind of a, a tool. It's a means that helps us connect with God. 
I love, I tried to find it again, and I should have marked it when I read the book, but you included a prayer from this little boy who thanked God for the seemingly ordinary things in life, which made me start thinking about where can we find God's miracles today, and how can we be kind of on the lookout for them, because maybe they're not what we thought they were. Right, right. Yeah, just eyes open for, I think gratitude's essential for that, you know, knowing that everything's a gift knowing that every good and perfect gift that we have um, really can turn us on this little treasure map back to find the source, which is God himself. Mm -hmm. Gratitude helps us pinpoint where God is the source. And the more we do that, the more we practice that, the more our eyes are open to see, wow, Lord, I think you just did that. You know, it really turns our perspective. And so I think the gifts are there. Sometimes we're just not looking we're, we're assuming Americans are terrible at this, especially because yeah, we're we just are. we're taught that as individuals, which is not how other cultures think. We think very much individualistically that we're self-sufficient, mm-hmm. um, that we're self-starters, that we should provide for ourselves. And if and honestly, if everything isn't going well, turn to yourself and just do better. It's mm-hmm. kind of our mantra. It's mm-hmm. that um, self-made person sort of thing. Um, I think I think God really wants us to get over ourselves <laughs> and it it's the hard times that that happens so we end up needing him and turning to him so why can't we turn to him when we're not in these like needy places i've often wondered that yeah. like because i've i of course turn to god more when it's harder mm-hmm. and i feel closer to god and i'm like why can't i do this before the yeah. hard things yeah. because then maybe i could avoid the hard things right maybe i wouldn't have to learn at the bottom of the well always right yeah it i think it that's like a sanctification issue for all of us is something that we, as we grow as Christians, as we grow in faith, we begin to stop that cycle of self-sufficiency. And then when self fails, we Uh look to God. It's an issue of growing in faith where finally we realize, hey, why don't I look to God at the good times as well as the bad? Yeah. Yeah. So your book talked about many miracles of Jesus. Can you walk us through just one of them like and you can take time to look if you need to um i really think one of my favorites uh because i started with it is the miracle at cana the the water turned into wine Mm -hmm. i i had never really studied that story until this and i never really understood it i kind of thought it seemed like a party trick yeah like yeah hey jesus is fun he he made wine um until you realize that like nobody Nobody sees it but his mother, the disciples, and the servants. He's not made famous by that miracle. They don't tell the party guests what's happened. They Mm -hmm. don't even tell the groom. Why would you? Because then it could be shameful. Yes. So the interesting thing there is that wine and food really in that situation are what the groom is providing as an act of hospitality to the guests. Mm, mm-hmm. And there's really a social contract going on where when when the guests are invited, they're coming not for an hour or a day, they're coming for maybe a week or more. Oh, wow. And this is a culture and a time where it's not like, hey, let's run to the grocery store and get our food for this trip to the wedding. When they come, they're, the groom's family is contracting to provide for all of these guests. So here we have this like multiple day celebration 
and the groom is about to break the contract by not providing wine. And and not that that's a, just a celebratory experience. It's really the normal drink for adults because mm-hmm. you know it's safe to drink. Mm-hmm. It's been fermented. Mm-hmm. So these guests, their needs are not going to be provided for. And if the groom breaks this social contract, the guests can sue him. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that is not how you want to start your life in community, especially a community that's very, it's, it's a culture, we call it honor and shame, where everything you do either brings honor or shame on your family. You don't want to bring shame on your family at your wedding. You don't want to start off this way. And so whether he knows it or not, whether the, the bride knows it or not, whether the family knows it or not, they're in a desperate situation. Yeah. And the only person who points it out is Mary, is Jesus's mother. She she names it. She says, hey, there's a problem here. They're running out of wine. Mm-hmm. And she knows where to turn. She turns right to Jesus. Um, and so for me, I think what I love about that is I just, you know, I grew up kind of in a family and a culture where when bad things happen, you just didn't talk about it. You didn't name it. But I think what Mary really teaches us here is really the only way to get help is to ask. Yeah. And to admit something's wrong. She names it. She's the one who turns to Jesus and says, we need your help here. Mm -hmm. And that is the connection there. There's there's a desperate person, a desperate family. There's someone willing to name that no one has a solution but God Mm -hmm. and turn to Jesus. And that just opens the door for this incredible miracle. That's awesome. I love that. You talked about the Enneagram, and what do you, as a five, what do you, because you're investigating and gathering all the nuts, what do you, how does God speak to you in a way that he may not speak to other people? That's hilarious. Fives are weird, and we like being weird. Um, we They're also really rare, too, I think. Is that true? I think so, yeah. Because really? I'm listening to another podcast right now, and they're going through all of the Enneagram. Yeah. So when you said that, I was like, oh, Enneagram. I yeah. love this. Yeah. It's very popular right now, and it's it's really interesting. It help, It's helped me understand myself mm-hmm. a little bit, uh-huh. but it really helps me understand other people. When when I know or when they'll self-identify, I just think, oh, okay, well, you're an eight, so that that's how that works. Okay. Um, I think connecting with God as a five, um, I just, I want to, I, I go on these little spiritual quests mm-hmm. where there's a question I have to answer. That's a very five thing. We're called the investigator. Yeah. And that really leads me deeper into God. That That's how the miracle book started. Mm-hmm. I, I can remember this even as a, a teenager or a young person finding repetition in the Bible, like a theme that happened over and over again. Mm -hmm. And, you know, even as like a 12-year-old, I would get a notebook and I would write down all the places in the Bible. I had a concordance when I was, you know, 14. Wow, that's amazing. So strange. Um, But it was really a means of like, okay, I want to know all the places in the Bible where this happens. Where does this word pop up? That might be a clue that you might be, you know, have a lifetime in ministry ahead of you. But it's also just one of those things where you know that connecting with God, for me, it's like finding patterns. And even the way that the Lord speaks to me through Scripture, definitely, but in other things in life, I mentioned my call to ministry. Some of that's by repetition. Mm-hmm. It's by God saying again and again, hey, <laughs> this is, I'm trying to get this message through yeah. to you. So finding, connecting the dots, finding patterns is really important mm-hmm. to me. Mm-hmm. 
-hmm. And it often shows me where God is. Yeah. Yeah. I like how your whole life really, as we've talked about it, and I'm sure there's more that we haven't talked about, but that all of it gives a clue to what you, who you are today, not just what you are, but who you are. I think for me, and I don't know if this is a a Enneagram related thing, but I think integration is a really important thing for me. And for me, what that means is what you think and do and your faith and your family and um, your ministry and your job, that all of that somehow gets intertwined, that mm-hmm. that it's not a compartmentalized life yeah. where you, you know, leave work and go home and those are two separate people. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, making those connections is really important to mm-hmm. me. Yeah. And like you mentioned earlier, but I was already kind of thinking about it along those lines, like pastors are often seen or can be seen as one dimensional people. So for you, it would always be Jessica, Dean of Chapel, you know. So how do you... And you talked about this in the book, too, a little bit, like practicing the habit, like Jesus did, of action, rest, mm-hmm. engagement, mm-hmm. reflection. Um, how, do you, how, do you, how do you strive? I don't like that word, strive, but how do you find that rhythm mm-hmm. for yourself? By messing up a lot. <laughs> <laughs> By doing too much and uh-huh. knowing it's too much. Mm-hmm. By, um, by realizing I'm not doing it right. And then coming back to the center where I know, okay, I need to I need to get rebalanced with these things. And it happens to me every year. You know, there's some point in every year where I think, okay, this is too much. You know, let's yeah. let's recalibrate. Let's you know, let's make sure that we're not um, expecting ourselves to be superhuman. Mm-hmm. Um, and and putting the pieces back together. Mm-hmm. Where is a place that you can just be, Jessica? And what does that look like? Yeah, so I my family's really important to me. My my kids are are really the center of my world right now. They're nine and seven years old, Aww. and we just love to be together. We play games, we watch movies. They they um, were asked at one point this year, you know, what are people good at in your family? And like, well, Daddy's really good at cooking because Daddy's the cook, and um, Drew's really good at math. And Kate's really good at crafts. What is mommy really good at? Mommy's good at cuddling. I was like, oh, that, that's fantastic. If that's what, you know, like that's my gift. Uh-huh. I, um, we just love to spend time together. And that is probably just the most relaxed place in my life is being with my kids and with my husband. Um, and I, one thing I really love about just this kind of small town uh, mm-hmm. world is they are very connected to what I do here at the seminary. Mm-hmm. They're they're here as much as possible. They know the students. Yeah. Sometimes they think that the seminary students are like their peers and their <laughs> friends. Happens all the time, you know, and uh, that their babysitters are actually, you know, not there because we're paying them, but because they just want to hang out. And it's usually true, too. <laughs> but uh, I love that kind of integrated life where you just, it's, I wanted I wanted our life together at Asbury to be a place not where mommy goes to work, mm-hmm. but a place where we're all part of this community together. Mm-hmm. And that's been a really important part of who we are together as a family in this community. Mm-hmm. I love that. Yeah. Um, so I know you've already written several books. Are there more on the horizon for you? Gosh, I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> well, we do too. You always hope. Um, 
Yes. So I'm actually working on a project with Seedbed right now. Really? It's my first project with them, and I love Seedbed, so I'm so thrilled to be connected with them. Um, it's in very early stages, so it's a book on chaos. Interesting. As odd as that sounds, there's just a lot of it around. And and it's been really interesting because I'll sit down and ask people, like, where where's the chaos in your life or your world? Everybody has an answer. Nobody has to think about it for long. You know, yeah. chaos is just a reality, whether it's for a lot of people, it's their schedules. They feel mm-hmm. overwhelmed by a lot. Some people, it's um, life events that happen that they don't have control over. Uh, uh-huh. There's a lot of relationships in chaos. Um, the church is often in chaos. The um, local churches and then, you know, denominations are experiencing uh-huh. a lot of struggles. Uh-huh. And I think we, a lot of times, it's defined by something out of our control, something Mm. we would wish would be different. And uh, rather than responding to that with either just anxiety, which Mm -hmm. is rampant, or pretending, Mm -hmm. like, oh, no, everything's fine, Mm -hmm. which Christians have been really good at. Oh, we're great at it. Mm -hmm. And it's terrible. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fix things. Denial is not an answer that works for very long. I've been looking at, you know, what does God do with chaos? Where is God in the chaos? And God doesn't just want to show up in the in the neatest and most perfect places, which, I, you know, I'll say, like, if you're a perfect person, this book's not for you. Well, then it should be a bestseller because <laughs> all of us need it. Um, God, even from Genesis 1-1, which is really the inspiration for the book, God moves into places of chaos, darkness, and emptiness. That's how creation is described. God works with that. He loves, it's like raw material to him. He uh-huh. just sees chaotic places and people and says, I can do something with this. And that's a beautiful thing to see, but it's a very uncomfortable um, place to be in our uh-huh. lives. So just trying to reassure people chaos is not failure. It's not Mm. the check engine light that means you're about to just blow up. (laughs) Right. It it really is a sign that turning to God could be a place where God is at work in your life. Mm. Yeah. It ties into the miracles a little bit, too. Yep. Because if you're in chaos, you could be desperate. That's right. Yeah. That's a a better place to be than pretending that you're not. Yes, absolutely. Um, So as we're talking about the miracles, inside the miracles of Jesus— we talk about the people who who received the miracles, but there's a whole bunch of people in the crowd who didn't. Like, what do you do if you don't get the miracle mm-hmm. or it doesn't come in the way that you think or if you're still waiting on it? Right. So it seems like it's not coming. Right. I think that's a place all of us have found ourselves and yes. some of us in some very desperate situations. Some of us have been asking God for miracles in relationships and life and health and jobs. And a lot of people, I think, feel like they're kind of beating on a wall or a mm-hmm. door that's not opening. Um, I, what's helpful for me is to remember that Jesus is the ultimate gift and that what desperation gets us is is not always what we asked for initially. It's not always, I was desperate, and then I turned to God, and like a vending machine, I put mm-hmm. in my desperation, and he pulled out this miracle yeah. that's exactly what I ordered. I don't see a lot of God at work. That's not how my life works. Mm-hmm. Um, what is true, though, is that the miracle of God with us 
miracle of Emmanuel is so consistent, so unchanging. It's the alpha and omega part of God that when we turn and ask for God, he is present. Mm, uh So you can be in that chaos, in that desperation, without the answer that you've found. Uh But God can be in it with you. Uh And, um, I mean, what a gift. And what a witness to the world to say, hey, Christians aren't perfect. We we haven't gotten all the answers. Right. But look who's with us in the fire, right? Right. Back to like the Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Uh You're in the fire, (laughs) but he's in there with you. Yeah. I like how you talk about the compassion of Jesus and that it moves him to action. Maybe not in the way that we think or want, but that he's always active with us. And I love that, that picture. So as we wrap up the interview, we have questions that we ask everybody. And so our podcast is called The Thrive Podcast. And so what is a practice, it can be spiritual or otherwise, that is helping you thrive right now? Yeah, I think I mentioned that this has been sort of this the year of audio for me. Yeah. And I've been I've been using times when my hands are busy, but I can listen to something, um, not just for, you know, entertainment, but really to find ways to grow more deeply. Mm-hmm. And some some apps that have been helping me with that, um, Pray As You Go is a book of, uh, I mean, an app of daily meditation. The, the Bible app um, that, it's just if you type in Bible, it's the first one that comes up, I think, will read it out loud to you in this oh, incredible wow. <laughs> deep British voice. So as I get ready in the morning, I often listen to a chapter of the Bible first mm-hmm. and try to like get my mind focused around that. And it, it's, it's been helping me start the day in a good way. Mm, I love that. Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for joining me for today's conversation with Reverend Jessica Legrone. Just so grateful for her leadership and for today's conversation. I hope you enjoyed it as well. In our next episode, Winfield Bevins, Director of Church Planning at Asbury Seminary, joins us to talk about his new book, Ever Ancient, Ever New, that introduces us to a new generation of Christians who are embracing liturgy to enliven their faith journey. New podcast episodes release every other week, and you won't want to miss out. Subscribe in iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcast. You can follow us in all the places on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at at Asbury Seminary. So have a great day, y'all, and go do something that helps you thrive.